0: Before we get started this morning, as we continue our series through journey through the Bible, I'd like for us to pray together one more time and prepare our hearts to receive the word. So let's pray together. Lord, we have sung your praises for you are worthy of them, Lord, and we need to be reminded of how great you are. And now, Lord, we come to your scripture, we come to your word uh, as read and taught and preached, we pray now, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And faith, Lord, to believe, trust, and obey all that you have written and all that you have spoken to us. O oh, Lord, that we might walk before you, holy, faithful, courageous, being the people that you have desired us, called us to be. Minister to us now, Lord. We need you. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And as I said, we're going to continue this morning through our series called Journey Through the Bible. Where what we're doing is we are walking through the entire biblical storyline from Genesis to Revelation. And what we want to see is how the Bible is really just telling one big unfolding story, the story of human history, the story of the world, the story of our redemption. And one of the reasons I felt like this was so important was because the story in which you see your life as embedded in is is your story, is your worldview, is the way you think it shapes who you are. The story that you believe you are a part of. And what I want us to see through this series is that we don't make up our own story. We can't create our own story. We are part of God's story. And the only way we will find that joy and that peace and that hope and that true meaning that we know we were made for is if we plant ourselves firmly in the story in which we actually live. That is God's story for us. And this morning we're going to continue... um, In the book of Judges, we've talked a couple weeks ago, we talked about the promised land and how God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to give the land to his people. But of course, the question then becomes, how did Israel fare in the land that God gave to them? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so uh, I invite you, if you're able and willing to stand in honor of the reading of God's word, as we read from Judges chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Judges 2, verse 1. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed to the Lord there. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three truths truths from our text this morning. Three truths from our text this morning. Number one, disobedience has consequences. Number two, God's mercy is great. And number three, we need a king. Disobedience has consequences. God's mercy is great. We need a king. First, disobedience has consequences. You see, to understand the book of Joshua, I mean Judges, you really have to put it in its historical and canonical context. So this is the story, Judges is the story of what happened in the generations following Joshua's generation. Following the generation that actually brought and initially conquered the promised land. What happened in that time period between Joshua and then what we call the period of the kings. God granted the land to the people of Israel, but in 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 one place it says that God did not drive all the people out all at once, uh, lest the the wild animals and the the wild beasts multiply in the land. And so uh, they entered the promised land. They were to drive all the people out, but it wasn't necessarily supposed to happen all at once. And as we talked a couple of weeks ago, the Israel's interest... Uh, entrance into the Promised Land was a was a fulfillment that God uh, of God's promise uh, originally to Abraham. I will give you this land. He told Abraham. It was it, it was a gift. It was a gift of grace by God promised to Abraham and to his offspring after him. And so God promises to Abraham, and God fulfilled that promise through uh, Joshua. So after the Exodus, after he delivered the Jews from slavery uh, in Egypt and he brought them up into, he brought them uh, through the Red Sea, he took them to the land of Sinai in which he gave them the law, the old covenant. And so the law was after God had saved them and it was to be, it was for them, it was to show them how they were supposed to live as God's redeemed people. It was to show them how they were supposed to live as God's saved, chosen, covenant people. And this makes sense then when you think about it in terms of since he was going to give Israel the land, what does it mean? It means the land of Israel was supposed to be the place where the people of God dwelt manifestly with God uh, in a land of their own. In other words, uh, what we said before is that Israel was supposed to be a, a type of Eden. That is, it was supposed to be a place where God manifestly dwelt with his people. It was, supposed to be, it was supposed to be a microcosm, a small picture of what the whole world was supposed to be all along. But we ruined it through sin. We ruined it through sin. And so, they were supposed to live with God th- there, living, obeying God's law... Uh, in order to show forth to the world God's moral righteousness, the moral righteousness of their God. That's why they were supposed to obey the law. They were supposed to live in harmony in the land with their God. And it is in this redemptive historical context in which the Israelites come to conquer uh, the land. You see, and this is a, it's important to understand. It's a, that's why it's important to understand the flow of the story and the flow of history so that you can see the context in which the events of the Bible take place because many misunderstand this. Many view the, the God's command to wipe out the Canaanites as a great act of evil and wickedness. And, and, and many people will claim it as a reason not to believe in God. And other people, they, just, they don't want to throw Jesus out. So they'll go to so far as to say things like, well, the old, like there was two different gods. An Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And, and, that, and, that, and so they say, you, you, you shouldn't really, we don't really believe the Old Testament. We just believe Jesus and his teachings. But you can't understand Jesus without the, the Old Testament. You can't understand the story without understanding, part of the story without understanding the whole story. It's in this, it's in this context uh, of, of God entering into this covenant land with his covenant people to be their God and they, they his people forever is the context in which uh, Israelite enters the land and is to conquer the land. And, and uh, another aspect of this as well is that the entrance of Israelites into the land was, was God's judgment on the Canaanites' sin. The Bible actually makes this quite clear in Genesis fifteen thirteen and following. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Talk talking about Egypt. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here. That is Canaan. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does it mean? It means God dealt patiently with the sins of the Canaanites. God wasn't going to immediately conquer the land and give it to Abraham right then. Why? Because, it, because as it were, their sins were not complete. Their sins had not reached their height. He was still dealing patiently with them until, the, until the, the height of their sins come along. And then he would judge them. In other words, he dealt patiently with them. And if you read your Bible, what you'll see is that in the same way that God used the nation of Israel to judge the sin of the Canaanites... Israel, when they rebelled against God, they too would be conquered and judged by the nations of Assyria and the nations of Babylon in the same way that God used them as judgment. Understood in this way then, understood in this way, what we see then is that the the destruction of the Canaanites, the driving out of the Canaanites before Israel into the land is what? It's a picture of the final judgment. It's a picture of the final judgment. What do I mean? I mean Israel is supposed to be, was supposed to be a a picture, a type of Eden, a type of heaven, a type of the new creation. There will be no sin in heaven. There will be no sin in heaven. Why will there be no sin in heaven? Because God's gonna deal with it. He's going to literally wipe it out. And so God's judgment on the Canaanites was, it's a a picture of the final judgment. In order for God to dwell unhindered with his people, he must purify the land of its sin. And and that's why the Bible says, the Bible talks about Christ coming back to do what? To judge the world. He He will judge the world. The Bible says that everyone will be judged according to their deeds, according to their works. We'll be judged for what we did in the body. Right, it's very clear. God will wipe away sin from the world, so that when Christ comes back, the world will be prepared—a a, a, a holy place, a pure place, a place without sin, where we will dwell with our God forever. And why? Why is this? Why must it be this way? Well, there's a couple reasons. First one is this: to not deal with sin, to not punish sin, is to is to implicitly say it's okay. It's to sweep it under the rug. And God will not be complicit in sin. And the second reason is this. Where sin is not utterly destroyed, that is, where sin is tolerated, it is eventually embraced. That's a principle for your life. Sin will not play your tiny little pet. If you you bring a lion cub into your house, it's going to grow up and eat you. If you don't kill it. I'm serious. You don't. sit Where sin is tolerated, it will eventually be embraced. And that's what? What is that? It's the story of Israel. Right? That's why in in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this was the the original, this was the command that God gave uh, to Israel through Moses before Moses died and before they conquered the land. This is what uh, God told them. Moses told them. He said, "When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you—the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites—seven nations more numerous and mightier than you—and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not make. You shall make no covenant with them." And show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars. And chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So that's the, that's the context into which the book of Judges happens and, wh- and, 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 and follows up on. And so what happens here in the book of Judges? We're just going to read a few passages here. In chapter 1, what, what, you begin reading it. If you've read the book of Judges before, you begin reading it and you think... Okay, all right. Things are going okay here in Judges 1, 4, for example. It says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. That's Judges 1, 4. And you read a couple, you read a little bit further in chapter 1, and you're like, okay, things are going okay. All right? But then you get to, you don't even get to the end of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 27, then it says this. But Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-Shayon. And its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And if you continue to follow through the rest of chapter one, it says, uh, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Over and over again, Israel disobeyed God. You see, you see, God was fulfilling his promise. God had already saved them. God had promised to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. They only had one rule. They only, Israel only had one role to play in this whole shebang. The one rule was this. Don't make a peace treaty with sin. And they disobeyed. They disobeyed. And at the passage that we read at the very beginning, um, what we saw was that because they did not utterly drive out the peoples before them as God commanded them, God said, now I'm not going to drive them out before you. Now you won't be able to drive them out if you tried. And, and guess what? They're going to be a snare to you. And indeed they were. Indeed they were. So what's the point here? The point is this. The point is is, is that disobedience has consequences. Disobedience has consequences. They had their chance to drive out the peoples, and they disobeyed, and their chance was gone. What does it mean? It doesn't mean God stopped loving Israel. It doesn't mean that God wasn't going to ultimately keep his promise to Abraham. He will. But what it does mean is that disobedience has consequences. And we know this. Even as Christians, we can sin, sometimes greatly. And it is possible to make, to have a, to make a very, to sin, to sin against God make, uh, in, a, in a very serious way. And we may be genuinely and truly sorry for what we have done. And the Bible clearly says, God will forgive us of our sin. If we're in Christ, God will truly and really and completely forgive us of our sin. But, but that doesn't mean your sin won't have consequences. Many of us, many of you in this room, myself included, we all know things. We can think of something right now where I believe I'm forgiven of that sin, but I still got to deal with it. I still have to deal with it. It is always better to obey God the first time around. The younger you are, the more you need to hear what I just said. It is always better to obey God the first time around. There's a lot of people in this room who, would, who could look a young man or young, young woman in the eye and say, God's forgiven me of my sins, but look, you don't want to make the mistakes I made. You don't want to walk down the path that I've chosen. It's always better to obey God the first time around. If you are making a peace treaty with your sin, know this, it will kill you. So what do you have to do? You have to kill it. Put it to death. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better to enter into life, enter into eternal life, enter into heaven with one eye and one hand than to go to hell with two eyes and two hands. Disobedience has consequences. Number two, but God's mercy is great. God's mercy is great. You see, Israel was faithful in Joshua's generation. But as we see in the book of Judges, the generation that followed, by and large, abandoned the Lord. That's what it says in Judges 2.13. It says, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could... No longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. But what happens in the very next verse, verse 16? It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Soon they, to- they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. You see, when you read the book of Judges, especially, I mean, and in, in, in the context of the whole Bible of what everything that God had already done for Israel, and then you see what Israel does in disobeying him and embracing idols and false gods and all kinds of sin. If you read it, then you under, you, then you begin to see, you kind of get the glimpse. Why would God continue to deliver them? Why would God continue to Save them. Why would God continue to to free them from the grip of oppression? And it's because of it's because God's mercy is great. That's why. You see, if you read the book of Judges. You 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 understand the cycle that takes place several times in Judges. The Israelites reject God. They they follow the idols, right? And then and then because of that, they are oppressed. They 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 are attacked and fall under the the. Uh, the oppression of other nations, but then they cry out to God, and then God raises up a judge, and and that word judge there it doesn't mean it does, it's not the same way we use it as someone who sits in a courtroom. The judge it means it means a deliverer, a savior, most of the time a warrior who would deliver them from the the, the hands of their oppressors, and God would raise up a judge. And then, during the time of the judge, they would experience a measure of peace and freedom. But, after that judge died, what would happen? Then Israel, they would go right back to their idolatry, most of the time worse than before. In other words, Judges is like a downward spiral. It's kind of like this. Judges is kind of like a roller coaster that starts out at its highest, and then they, they go down... And then they go a little bit up when there's a judge, but then they go down further than they did before, just continually downward, continually downward. In fact, this downward trend can be seen in the progression of the judges themselves. If you read the book of Judges, you see that the early judges are portrayed as not having many flaws. And then by the time you get to Gideon, by the time you get to Gideon, you have a guy who is... Who's, who's just timid and kind of weak in his faith and is always kind of testing God to, 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 make, to just double check, make sure God ain't lying to him, All right? And then by the time you get to the very end, you have Samson, who despite his miraculous um, upbringing and birth, he was uh, to be a, Nazareth for, a Nazarite from birth. He married pagan women. He broke all three of his Nazarite vows. He gave himself to a Gentile prostitute, and eventually there was some measure of deliverance at the end of his life. At the end, at the end of his life, but it cost him his life. You know, it's you know, it's funny we have Gideon, we have uh, Samson, for example, in our children's Bible, but he's not he's not the greatest model. God used him. God can use broken people. But what you see in the story of Judges, and what I think the author of the story clearly wants us to see, is that things weren't going well for Israel. They were on a downward spiral, worse and worse away from God. And yet, time and time again, God rescued them. His steadfast, God's love for his people is unbelievable. He's so great, he's so kind, he's so merciful. Jesus Christ when he came he didn't come to die for good people if there was good people he wouldn't need to come there were no good people the Bible says none is righteous no not one Jesus Christ died for bad people sinners that's the love of God there is no sin so great that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot or will not cover it's true it's true and that's and, and that's what we see here, but at the same time, at the same time, you see there are some who kind of take that and hear that right and good and true thing, but then they might say something like this. They might say, Well, I can just do whatever I want, because God will forgive me. No, he won't. Not if you like that. Not if your heart's like that. You see, if the grace of God don't change if the grace of God can't change your heart, nothing will. If you cannot see what Christ has really done for you, that God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, gave his only son to die the death of a criminal for your sin? And you're telling me you can accept that without being grateful for it, without it changing you, without wanting to live for him? I cannot believe someone has been touched by the grace of God and then presume upon it. I can't believe it. But if you have been touched by the grace of God, or if you... When you grasp the grace of God, I'm telling you, no matter how great your sin is, there is no sin so great that Jesus can't forgive. And when you're forgiven, believe me, it'll change you. It'll change you. It'll change your life. But if you harden your heart and presume upon God's mercy, that shows that you haven't really got it. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18. Two men went up, in t- two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his, up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see? It's the one who recognizes their need of grace. That gets it. But if you never reach the point. Where you realize that you need it. You'll never get it. Repent. Jesus said. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if we do, there's unbelievable mercy for us. Disobedience has consequences. God's mercy is great. Number three, we need a king. Toward the end of the book of Judges, after the several cycles of the Judges take place, there are two stories. If you've ever read those stories, you remember thinking, what in the world is going on? There are two stories there that the author, I think, clearly puts there to show us the depths to which Israel has fallen. There's the story of how the tribe of Dan migrated from their allotted inheritance in the south up to the northernmost part of Israel. That's why when you read in the Bible, it says from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost part of Israel and Beersheba was the southernmost part of Israel. So when it says from Dan to Beersheba, it's talking about all of Israel. But see, Dan's allotment was to be in the southern part, and they moved up, rejecting God's allotment, up in a wicked way, in a very wicked manner, up to the northern part of Israel. And you can read that story there. And they, In fact, they took a Levite as their own idolatrous priest. And then after that story, there's this other crazy story, a gru- gruesome story, a heartless story, about a town in Benjamin who wanted to sodomize a passer-through. And rather than doing that, he, the man heartlessly let them rape and kill his concubine instead. And then the man took his concubine and cut her up into pieces and sent her all over the land of Israel to show how great an evil thing had been done in Israel. And then it started a civil war. And you read that and say, my goodness, what's going on? And interestingly, in each of these little sections near the end of Judges there, Each of these little sections begins with this little comment. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18, 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 19, 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel. And finally, you get to the very last verse of the book of Judges. What a way to end the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a, what a way to end the book. What are we being told here? Well, scholars kind of debate it, but I think it's, it, the implication, I mean, it seems to me it's quite undeniable that what the author is, is, seems to be implicitly saying is that if Israel had a king, things might be better. If Israel had a king, then maybe people wouldn't do what was right in their own eyes. And in a sense, that's true. With a strong, unifying leader, if the leader was godly, if the leader was holy, if the leader followed the Lord, then he could, in fact, give... The nation much needed direction and could model and teach and enforce God's law in the land. But we also know this from the Bible. That later, when Israel, in fact, did ask for a king from the prophet Samuel. This is what happens. First Samuel 8 says that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, Israel's problem then and later... It was not that they didn't have a king. They had a king. They had a king the whole time. They just didn't serve him. They didn't love him. They didn't trust him. You see, God was supposed to be their king. God was supposed to be our king. God is the king. And yet, nevertheless, nevertheless, when you read the Bible, it's very interesting because even before this time, uh, in Israel's history the Bible actually already prophesies that they would have a king and uh, before before Jacob dies in the land of Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis, he prophesies that a ruler would come from Judah who would hold the scepter uh, in the, very, the very first gospel in Genesis chapter 3 God tells Satan that there will be an offspring of Eve who will strike his head. We, say, we see in the Bible, in a very real sense, even before all this takes place, that there is to be a king that's coming. But how can the people of God have a king, the rightful king, a king? How can they have God as a king and a man as a king? Revelation chapter 19. We have a king. He is God. He is man. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he came. He came in the fullness of time. The Bible says born of a virgin. And he came first. He came first not as a rider on a white horse, but a baby lying in a manger to save his people from their sin. And he lived a life without sin because you couldn't and I couldn't. He lived a life without sin for us. And on the cross, the Bible says that the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sin so that God would both be a just God in punishing sin, but could also be a merciful God in forgiving sin. Because he had a willing, perfect substitute who came for us. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Therefore, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the penalty of sin so that everyone who believes in him, who turns away from their sin and trusts in him and surrenders to him and bows the knee to him and says like that tax collector, God, I'm a great sinner. God, I can't even lift my eyes to heaven, but God have mercy on me. The Bible says when that happens in the genuineness of your heart, you're Forgiven of your sins, you are justified before God, you are adopted into the forever family of God, and your destiny is to ride on a white horse next to your Savior one day. God came for us, and right now is a time of patience, a time of waiting. A time when the gospel can go forth so that those who hear and believe and trust and obey can become a citizen of the heavenly kingdom now before it comes and it's too late. Through faith in Christ, you can come now. But see, there will be a time when the sins of the world are complete. And the appointed time will come and Christ will descend to wipe the world clean. So that he can dwell in a land free from sin with his people forever. And so as I close this morning, it's just a simple plea. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, and you will be saved believe on him and you will be saved. Trust in him. Surrender to him and you will be saved. Let's pray.